0: with David Epstein at Leaders in Performance, which is an interesting conference in New York. As the name suggests, it's about sports performance. David is doing a keynote talk tomorrow about the role of genetics in performance. And we had a previous podcast that, if you haven't already listened to, feel free to check back on about some of those issues. But this podcast, we're gonna focus on the role of genetics in sudden cardiac death, specifically. And I know it's a personal interest and personal concern David and one of his running buddies was affected by this uh, when David was a college runner, really, and it's a moving part of his books, The Sports Gene. So, thanks for doing a podcast here at uh, Leaders in Performance. My pleasure. And I'm going to ask you by sort of backgrounding for our audience who knows that uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a problem, they know that sudden death is a problem, they know as clinicians how to prepare for it. But we're not experts on genetics, and you've really made this. Um, a study, and you do a great job of explaining it. So how do you normally explain the problem of sudden cardiac death and the genes related to that when you're speaking to public and um, university audiences?
1: That's a good question. So I I usually say there's a gene, single gene mutation. It's like one little typo in all the genetic code that causes some people's heart to be built. The cells instead of stacked like bricks in a wall are stacked as if all the bricks were just thrown in a dumpster. And when the electrical impulse that cues the muscle to to twitch your heartbeat uh, goes around it can end up in short circuits and all those little those little bricks Um, and for reasons that aren't entirely clear it can be triggered by physical activity um, and and sometimes without prior recognizable symptoms Uh, and and so I try to kind of explain it like that and um, usually find that people through a degree of separation or two usually know someone that this has happened to uh, so they usually have had the experience of at least through a degree of separation hearing of someone who was otherwise healthy not having noticeable symptoms and drop dead, whether that's a kid at the high school near them or or somebody closer to them.
0: And tell us how this happened for you.
1: So for me, uh, I had a training partner, um young Jamaican man named Kevin Richards, who was a phenomenal athlete, a state champion as a sophomore, you know, picture of health. Uh, was going to be the first in his family of Jamaican immigrants to go to college and about three steps after a mile race he just sunk to the floor um, and died right there on the floor with no no previous recognized um, symptoms and um, you know it took me a while to uh, kind of work up the courage I guess to ask his parents what happened even though I was I, I knew them well and they told me you know he had a heart attack and I realized at that moment that I had no idea what heart attack means, and that was kind of a fork in the road in my career. Where I decided I needed to find out what happened to him. Eventually, they signed a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records, and I did that from various places. And I saw, you know, he's a normal. I think adult male heart weighs about 300 grams. His was something like 550 grams. He had this myocardial disarray. These this heart muscle cells all askew, which is a telltale sign of HCM. And at the time, I don't think hypertrophic cardiomyopathy really showed up in the press much, and so I sort of made it my mission to write about it in Sports Illustrated, that was my goal, was to write about it in Sports Illustrated. Um, And I did, because I don't think that we can save everyone from this, but I think we can do a better job than we are.
0: And if we talk about just another sort of famous case that's in the public domain, so Reggie Lewis um, obviously died. And they'd been press before that that he was at risk. What what do you know about that story?
1: Yeah, so Reggie Lewis, sometimes Reggie Lewis and another basketball player who died on television named Hank Gathers are kind of the uh, poster children cases for HCM. Although actually, neither one of them had it. So I can say because I've seen uh, definitive documentation um, about them, they both had myocarditis, um, which can sometimes you know be the result of viral infection, things like that. And and uh, in Reggie Lewis's case, in particular. There were some doctors telling him that he was going to die on the court. He was at really, really high risk, and he sort of did a bit of doctor shopping, I guess you could say, for um, alternate opinions. I know one of his electrophysiologists who told him, look, you should get an implantable defibrillator, um, and I've, I've been told, I don't know if this is 100% the case, but I've been told that Reggie saw that as kind of a sign of, of disability, um, and he wanted to keep playing with his career, and he did indeed die um, in practice not long after that.
0: And it's not straightforward because players could be screened, but then they're worried that they won't get contracts. And in the sports team, you talk about uh, a player who was at the Bulls.
1: Yeah, that's right. Eddie Curry was with the Bulls and and sort of was, you know, uh, a heart murmur was picked up. And heart murmur can be extremely difficult in athletes, right? Because a lot of them have a physiological heart murmur just because of their training. Their heart's gotten stronger. And so it takes a real expert to tell what might be a dangerous sounding heart murmur. And the Bulls decided that Eddie Curry might be at risk of dropping dead. And so they ordered him to get genetic testing for known variants of HCM, and he refused. They, they offered him, they said, look, if you have, if you do have it, you can't play for us, but we'll give you $400,000 a year for the next 40 years, right? And, and Eddie Curry's de- declined. He said, no, I don't want that testing. And so the Bulls traded him. Um, and he's alive, and he didn't have another problem with it. So that kind of goes to the the difficulty of figuring this out when there's a lot of money on the line. Um. It gives me a chance
0: to just uh, alert listeners to the BJSM and uh, BMJ learning module on how to differentiate the ECGs in athletes and regular people. And we'll put that link on the website. But that's been organized through the AMSSM. The American Medical Society for Sports Medicine in conjunction with FIFA and the BMJ and uh, more than 10,000 people have taken that free module and been educated on that. So.
1: And, and I'd love to if I can make a pitch for it. So there are now athletes for the first time playing with ICD's with implantable defibrillator even though that's not the recommendation because the leads can be broken from vigorous activity. Some athletes are doing it anyway and so they should be tracked because this will be the first generation. There's a registry at Yale that's doing some of that. Um, you know, you can go online, you can see Anthony Van Loo, a Belgian soccer player, who drops dead during a match and he gets shocked back to life. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, but we need to track these athletes to see what happens to ICDs under, in play, because for the first time, athletes are ignoring the, tr- the consensus recommendations and playing with them, and nobody knows what will happen. It's a tough area, and we're not expecting
0: you to do the sports cardiology for us, but actually you do understand it superbly and explain it well. But we've got an issue of BJSM around August of 2014, um, edited by John Dresner, that will touch on many of these issues. And it's been a focus area of BJSM for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. as you know. So are there any other sort of genetic messages on the heart side that you think our listeners might be interested in?
1: Well, one thing that I think is is fascinating and a little disappointing with HCM, so back in the 90s when the first... A few gene variants involved in, in cardiac cells were discovered that can cause HCM. There was this idea among the scientists that, like, look, we found the three variants. This is it. We can genetically screen everyone for HCM. Fast forward to today, and there are 1,400 different known mutations, any one of which can cause HCM. Two-thirds of those have only been identified in one family. So here you have private mutations um, that many different genetic pathways that can cause the same phenotype. Which again goes to the difficulty uh, of, of determining genetic linkages to disease. So, fortunately, most cases come from a small number of the known gene variants, so people can be screened. But, you know, it's, it's, it's quite difficult. Just having the same phenotype doesn't mean it's coming from the same gene. So, at, at every turn almost where genetics could be more complicated, it is.
0: And so, what's your um, take on screening, just philosophically, as a thoughtful guy?
1: I think it absolutely should be made available. I think you, you can't tell someone that they don't have HCM because they may have private mutations. I think if people in the family have died unexpectedly of cardiovascular reasons before the age of 60, um, they should uh, you know, be offered some screening. If someone dies unexpectedly, they should make sure to get... Um, you know, a DNA sample from them because if you can pinpoint the family mutation then for the rest of time to come you can save people a lot of heartache and and curiosity and perhaps some sudden deaths. But I really think also we just need to do a better job of interrogating family history. Like I would go to, um, when I was sort of in my own I guess grieving period, I would go to conferences of families who were affected by HCM or thought maybe they were and you'd hear families who said well we don't really know if we have something but you know Uncle Jim uh, died in a one-car accident and and cousin Jimmy was a varsity swimmer but he drowned in the pool. Like, those are cardiac arrest, right? And and we really need to do a better job of having people know a little bit about their family history so we know who can make use of this kind of screening.
0: Getting the fundamentals right and John Dresner and Yugi Dorjak and others have been pushing that um, as you say. So in your research and familiarity with the field, you've heard that um, quite a few people uh, eligible to do pre-participation screening now. Yeah.
1: So there's every time there's a, there's a death, there's kind of an argument. If if it's high profile, um, there's this argument about well, should we give like every kid in the country an Echo, which at the moment um, isn't going to happen right now. Maybe there's a time where that will be feasible, and and you know I would be all for saving as many people as possible. But while we debate these sort of all or nothing solutions, we're going the wrong direction on things that we could do today that cost no money. So, we, we've more states than a decade ago are allowed to have people who have really no cardiovascular training do pre participation physicals for high school athletics. Some states allow herbalists to do it, right? And so, you're, nobody would catch every kid, but Someone with good cardiovascular training might pick up some of the difference between a dangerous heart murmur and a physiologic heart murmur. Or they might follow the 12 questions that the American Heart Association recommends for uh, family history screening. So this is no cost stuff that we're going in the wrong direction on, um, m- while comprehensive solutions are, are maybe farther off.
0: So let's leave it for the heart but I can just use that as an excuse to just jump to the blood <laughs> um, before we finish. Um, There's a great story in your book, The Sports Gene, where you talk about uh, Aero Manturanta.
1: Aero Manturanta was maybe the best endurance athlete in the world um, in the 1960s. He uh, came from a small town in the Arctic of Finland. Uh, He won seven Olympic medals, three of them gold. One of his margins of victory has never since been equaled. And it was discovered during sort of routine physical in his competitive career that he had about 50% higher hematocrit. Um, than a typical athlete, and so it was sort of assumed that he was blood doping <laughs> throughout his career. Uh, but 20 years after he retired, um, a group of doctors in Finland who had seen others of his family members and noticed that some of them also had this brought in a whole group of the family members, and it was actually Arrow's blood that they had. They were they, their first theory was that maybe their red blood cells don't die as quick, so they replenish, and that turned out not to be the case. And they went through these variety of theories. They said, well, maybe they're maybe they. Uh, their bodies react to um, you know the EPO hormone more effectively and so there's this great write-up from a hematologist who has some of Arrows bone marrow cells puts them in a petri dish gets ready to apply EPO to see what happens but in all re- the blood red blood cell production has already started before she even adds the EPO because whatever little trace was in there is already kicking off this production of red blood cells and it turns out that Arrows family has a mutation that truncates the EPO receptor and it, it basically removes, it's on the EPO receptor gene, uh, and it basically removes the the brakes that, that act as a sensor telling the body, we, we've produced enough red blood cells, let's stop now. Uh, and so Arrow's hematocrit, I think the highest I saw it measured at was like 67 or something like that. Um, so he was basically, and you know, you can't even compete like in the Tour de France if you're above 50. Uh, pretty amazing. Um, Arrow, when I went to visit him, he didn't accept this as a, an explanation for... Um, his greatness. Uh, So he said, well, but also it thickens your blood so there's a disadvantage too. Um, But I I put together a pedigree of his family and some uh, he has a, a niece who has it, who was a uh, European junior champion cross-country skiing. He has a nephew who has it, who was also an Olympic gold medalist. And the, the members of the family who don't have it aren't good ski racers. So not at all to say that that's the only thing that made him who he is, because he put in huge volumes of training. He grew up skiing across a frozen lake to get to school. You know, he's like, the, it's it's like a Kenyan, but transported to the Arctic forest instead. Uh, But I do think it mattered. And in fact, in cross-country skiing today, there are other skiers who have medical exemptions showing that they have really high hematocrit, but it's been tracked over time, so it's not the result of doping. So it hasn't been pinpointed to a single gene in the same way, but I, I think there are other people who are as unusual physiologically as Aero. You know, as a result of the, the blood thickening, his skin turned incredibly red, which is amazing to see in Finland where his wife has this glacier blue eyes and, like, bleach blonde hair and white skin, and here he is, his, his face is almost turning purple.
0: I think the clinicians might be able to relate to hemochromatosis. Um, a more commonly... Common condition and the skin does give a discoloration. So, interesting observation that you were able to make when you went on that trip. And uh, congratulations on the research in the sports gene. Uh, I know you went to meet all these folks. And as I've said to our listeners in the first podcast, a lot of characters in your book and the people we know from conferences, um, such as Ross Tucker, Janus Malcolm Collins, um, they're all there. It's a great read. So, that's the sports gene. Um, thanks for talking about sports cardiology and uh, this difficult area. Um, The last bit relates to doping and testing for doping, and BJSM has a special issue on the biological passport, Mm -hmm. and obviously that's important because the longitudinal nature of tracking people, it means that we can tell who has a legitimate reason for having a higher hematocrit so um, listeners can follow that up on bjsm as well so look david thanks for your time in new york i appreciate it
1: it's my pleasure thanks for having me
0: and uh, follow bjsm on twitter at bjsm underscore bmj our blog should give you interesting updates and we're looking forward to your suggestions about who you'd like us on the podcast thanks a lot for listening.